Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. So the, the video was about the Bible. Has anybody ever been questioned or asked uh, about the authenticity of the Bible by somebody else? Has that ever happened to anyone? Okay, legitimate question to be able to ask. And we may have even asked it ourselves because I know that some were saved later on in life. And so maybe that might have been a thought beforehand. And let's be honest, as Christians, we can sometimes struggle with that thought. Okay, what did Jesus mean in this passage? Is this legitimate? How in the world... Uh, do we know for sure that the books that are included in this canon here, which we'll jump into a little bit later on, are actually the books that are supposed to be here, and what about the other ones? There was a song that I learned, a popular song when I was younger, and it goes like this. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I don't even remember the words. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Raise your hand if you know that song. Raise your hand. Okay. You guys all know that? Oh, man. The B-I-B-L-E. Other than the fact that it helped me learn how to spell the word Bible, uh, that song taught me a lot of really good things, and that was a foundational truth. That The Bible is my foundation, but there's one question that that song does not answer, and that is this. How do we know that the Bible is indeed the foundation for our lives? How do, we do, how do we know that the Bible is the foundation for our Christian life? Now, we do have to be clear, the Bible is not the foundation for Christianity. Jesus is. Without Jesus, we would not be Christians. But the Bible is the foundation for helping us be able to understand how we should live this Christian life. So when I come before you this morning um, to, to, to think about this question... And, and if somebody was approaching you and say, how do we know that the Bible is true? For us to answer, because God says it's true, is not sufficient to an atheist. That's called circular reasoning. It's all based upon your presupposition of whether or not you believe that God exists. And so, I mean, it is true, the Bible is true because God wrote it, but that doesn't work in being able to prove the reliability of the Bible. Many skeptics doubt that God exists because they don't understand or believe the legitimacy of the Bible. Many skeptics argue that the Bible is just nothing more than an outdated text of irrelevant truths and religions believed by people who buried their head in the sand and don't really know what's going on. People often criticize Bible-believing Christians. A guy by the name of Sam Harris, Sam Harris, a popular atheist writer and speaker, says this. Tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can be made, make a man invisible. He is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. Tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. Is Sam Harris being unfair to the Christians? Is it true that Christians will blindly accept the word of God without proving its authenticity? Now, we understand that we don't have to prove the Bible in order for it to be true. If we believe something to be true, that doesn't make it actually true. For example, uh, if I believe that chair is going to hold me up, that doesn't make that chair factual in being able to hold me up. It's based upon whether or not that chair is actually able to hold me up. I can tell you all day long that I am a six foot seven, 
Chinese basketball player, and I can believe that with all of my heart, but that doesn't prove the facts. That is not who I am. And so just because we believe the Bible is true or we don't believe the Bible is true does not make it actually true. Uh, so with that being said, how can we be sure that the Bible can be trusted? How can we be prepared to answer a skeptic that questions the validity of the Bible? When a person comes to you with a sincere heart, I just talked to a man here before the church service started, and uh, they talked about how they appreciated what was going on here with the series that we're in because they're currently talking with a person at their work who is just questioning everything about God, questioning everything about Christianity, and everything that he gives an answer for, the Christian man, the other person has a response for it. And so when it comes to the authenticity of the Bible, how do we know that it's reliable, and how can we equip ourselves with answers to be able to provide Provide that for those that are searching so that we can live up to our theme verse so that we can be prepared to ask or to give an answer to every man that asketh of the reason of the hope that is in you. Questioning the word of God is absolutely nothing new. They had it in the Bible. Matter of fact, if you could take your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, we're going to jump into scripture here this morning. In Luke chapter 24, this is Luke's account of the gospel and the earthly ministry of Christ. and the beginning part of Luke chapter 24, we see a group of ladies, uh, some gospel accounts say that there were five women that came to the uh, empty tomb. We, we obviously know that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, was two of those women. They came to present spices and lay spices to Jesus that they had prepared. And obviously this was the third morning after he had died. And so they go up to the tomb and what's, what's there? Nothing. The tomb is empty. And so obviously they're concerned, and they see these two men who are angels, and they uh, report to them and saying, why are you searching for this man? Why are you looking for the living among the dead when he told you that he was going to rise again from the dead? Beginning in verse 13, Luke records two men traveling to Emmaus. The resurrected Christ appears before them. I love this story that we're going to jump into here this morning. He joins them in their quest. He notices that they are sad, and so Jesus begins to question them. In the midst of that conversation, Jesus acts as if he did not know what happened regarding the crucified Messiah. Now, it's, it's curious to me that if they knew Jesus, that they did not recognize him. But anyway, that's besides the point. They did not know who Jesus was in that particular moment. So if you could stand with me out of reverence of God's word, we're going to begin reading in verse 18 down to verse 27 of Luke chapter 24. And here's how the story goes. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Are thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and thou hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? This is Jesus asking them. He's responding to Jesus after he asked them, Why are you so sad? In verse 19, and he said unto them, Jesus, What things? And they said unto him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Where is he? Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning of Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Some of the first skeptics of the Bible were disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ responds back to them and says, You fools, did you not believe what the Old Testament told you regarding the prophecy of the coming Messiah? And so Jesus then, almost like a punishment, explains to them all of what the Scripture says of why Jesus is standing before them. Since this is such a big topic regarding the reliability of the Bible, we're going to take the next few weeks, next two weeks, today and this week, to discuss this question. And our goal this morning is to look at the first two discussion points regarding this subject as we build a foundation of how we can answer someone regarding the reliability of the Bible. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate you standing for the reading of God's Word. Adrian Rogers, a great preacher, he who has now passed, says this. The Bible is a supernatural, spiritual, sovereign, surviving, sustaining, supercharged book about my Savior. So if we're going to answer this question regarding the reliability of the Bible, we must first answer the most logical question, and that is this. Where did my Bible come from? And to say Jesus, or God, is not sufficient. And so our first question here this morning is, how did we receive the Bible? We understand that the Bible does ultimately come from God. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The term inspiration means God breathed. And to explain this process, it's the Holy Spirit supernaturally overseeing the writing of the Bible. If you were to look at the Greek word moved, it comes from the word born along. And, and it, basically what it means is they guided, the Holy Spirit guided the men as the wind guides sailboats along the shore, along the, the water. So we do not hold to a mechanical dictation of God's word. So for example... God and the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit did not tell Paul to write this word, Luke, for this matter, to write this. And Paul writes, or Luke writes this. He did not tell him to write man, and then he writes man. That's not mechanical dictation. The Holy Spirit is allowing the, the authors for their personalities to come through in writing God's word, but he's overseeing that process so that every single word that's in God's word was approved by the Holy Spirit was guided by the Holy Spirit. You can, I mean, you can look at all the different authors and see their different writing styles and understand the mechanical dictation was not part of the Word of God. With that being said, the Holy Spirit oversaw this process so that every single word that was placed in the Bible is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to include. The Bible is composed of 66 books by 40 different authors written over the span of 1,500 years, but that's not what makes the Bible awesome and unique. Even though the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different men, it all has the same common storyline running throughout it, and there's never a discrepancy or a break in the story. All the inspired documents were compiled together to formulate what is known as the canon of Scripture. And that's the first thing we're going to talk about is this canon of Scripture. The word canon comes from the root word reed. Reed was used as a measuring rod, and it came to mean a standard. When it comes to the Bible, canon means an officially accepted list of books. The church did not create the canon. 
It did not determine which books would be called Scripture or the inspired Word of God. The, the church simply recognized or discovered which books had been inspired from their inception. Two men, Geisler and Nix, puts it this way. A book is not the Word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it was the Word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. There's an obvious difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Perhaps uh, you've been asked this question before by well-meaning, I shouldn't say necessarily well-meaning, but some of them may be well-meaning, by people basically saying this, why does God's word say you can't eat pork? but yet you Christians are going to Smithfield Barbecue every single Sunday. And for those of you that have not been to Smithfield Barbecue, you need to get there because you're missing out. Maybe you've been asked this question before. Why does the Word of God teach that homosexuals should be stoned to death, like it says in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13? What kind of God do you serve? See, what's happening here is they're intermixing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. The Old Testament canon speaks of, of, of life before the resurrection. We understand that in the Old Testament, God was preparing this nation for uh, the coming Messiah, the nation of Israel. In order to separate Israel from the other nations and usher in this covenant of grace, he gives them this Old Testament law. God established the Old Testament covenant. So the entire Old Testament canon must be interpreted how it was written for the purpose of its writing to establish the Old Testament law. When it comes to the establishment of the Old Testament canon, the Jews had a clearly defined body of Scripture known as the law or the Torah. And it was fixed early, early in the life of Israel, and there was no doubt from the Jews which books belong in the law and which do not. The prophets' books consisted of the former prophets, which is Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Then you have the latter prophets, which is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and the 12 smaller prophetic books. And then all the other writings are sometimes referred to as the writings. But different than the New Testament canon, the Old Testament canon was settled during the basic time in which that book was written. We do understand that at the end of the Old Testament, there were 400 years of silence before the beginning of the New Testament. There was little argument, especially on behalf of the Jews, that the current Old Testament canon that we hold now is the full and the complete Old Testament canon. And so that if, if everybody has an understanding of God's word, they must read it this way. Genesis down to Malachi is a different meaning, it's a different purpose than from Matthew all the way to Revelation. Uh, the Old Testament was paving the way for the Messiah. But there's this beautiful correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if we never thought about it this way, we've, we've got to get in our hearts how awesome it is to see God paving the way and preparing the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. I mean, look, look at the storyline. You've got Israel. They were following God. They were obviously God's chosen people. They were doing well. And then they turned their backs on God. They wanted to be like the other nations. If we were to look at the book of 1 Samuel, it was never God's intent for them to be ruled by a king. Saul, David, and I want to be careful on that. God knew that it was going to happen. He was sovereign. But that wasn't what God wanted ultimately for that nation. But God knew it was going to happen out of his sovereignty. See, if you were to think about the nation of Israel, 
All the other pagan kingdoms were ruled by a king. The nation of Israel wasn't. It was a theocracy. It was ruled by God. But if you were to read the story in 1 Samuel, you've got them complaining. And they're saying to God, God, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And God says back to them, that's not how I designed you. I designed you to answer directly to me. You are set apart from all the other nations. You answer directly to me. How awesome is that? You don't have some imperfect man overruling you or overseeing you. You answer to me. But the Israelites kept wanting it and wanting it and wanting it and wanting it. And finally, God said, fine, fine. You want a king? Here, I'm going to give you a king. And he gives him Saul. Saul starts off well, but we all know the end of the story. Saul does not do well. But you can see from Saul, David, Solomon, kingdom splits. You've got the northern kingdom, southern kingdom. I mean, they, I mean it's not good. It's just not good. One king leads him into a captivity, and, and it's just, it just gets further and further away from God. But you can see... This, this, this correlation between this grace and this judgment all throughout the chapter. God is pulling the nation of Israel. He's, he's telling him, listen, there's a, there's a coming Messiah. There's a coming Messiah. All the prophetic books are telling the nation of Israel, get your act together. The Messiah is coming. And so we have to read the Old Testament canon in that, with that view. But then you have 400 years of silence. Nothing happens for 400 years. It's a whole lot older than the United States of America. Could you imagine? Nothing for 400 years. This is not even part of my message here. It's just, you know, I'm thinking through this out loud here. Could you imagine what the Israelites would be thinking? They're reading the Old Testament, and they're trying to decipher how they should live in this Old Testament. There's a coming Messiah. Uh, God, year 100, they're probably thinking, where are you? Year 200, they're like, God, are you even going to come back? I'm thinking year 350, like, there's no God. There's no God anymore. Nobody's talking. And all of a sudden, in this quiet little town, this little baby's born. And now Jesus' entire earthly ministry is consistent of trying to reform Israel. This very thing that was professed in this Old Testament is here. This law that was set up to set you apart, to show how evil and messed up you were, it's no longer going to apply because now we're in the age of grace. And so we're introduced into the New Testament. As we transition from the Old into the New Testament, there's a noticeable difference that takes place. If you were to read the passages of the New Testament, you're not going to see anything in there about stoning homosexuals. Did you also know, and kids, this is not cool. If we were in the Old Testament, it would be bad. One of the Old Testament laws was actually stone kids that were rebellious. And so if a kid broke the, you know, the rules of the house, they're supposed to be taken out and stoned to death. Praise the Lord, that's not underneath this law of grace. Or I probably wouldn't be standing here. And maybe many of us wouldn't be in this room either. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, this is what Paul says. He says, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The Christian life of the New Testament is put on a completely new footing from the law. As we discussed in the Bible study on Wednesday night, Christ came to earth to reform Israel. Christ's purpose was to present the gospel to the entire world through the nation of Israel. This directly fulfills part of the covenant that Christ made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He says, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And we see that Jesus Christ, through him, which is a, a direct line down through Abraham, the whole entire world has this access to this salvation. But the nation of Israel rejected this Messiah. And so the focus that God had for the nation of Israel should shift to the church in the New Testament. And I'm being careful here. I'm not saying that the church is replacing Israel. 
Not saying that. The view that Israel and the church are different is taught in the New Testament. Specifically, look at Romans chapter 11. The church is distinct from Israel. We are taught in the New Testament canon that the church is an entirely new creation that came into being at Pentecost and will continue until the time that we are taken to heaven and the rapture. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together all things in Christ, which both are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, even in, him in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God had this all set up from the very beginning. Going back to the sovereignty of God. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. God has a permissible will, and everything that has happened in history has been part of God's permissible, sovereign will to line us up to where he wants us to be as a church today. But as far as this focus shift, Israel has been temporarily set aside in God's program during the age of grace. We could see that happening in the New Testament. If you were to read Romans chapter 11, we can see that God has not forgotten about his promise made to Israel. The church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. While God may be focusing his attention primarily on the church during this age of grace, God has not forgotten Israel, and one day he will restore Israel to the intended role as a nation he has chosen. But that's not happening now. So with that being said, when we read the Bible, we must read the Old and New Testament canons in light of how they were written. Now, when somebody asks you about the Old Testament, I don't, ex I don't expect you for you to give everything that I just gave, but have that understanding. The Old Testament canon was not written for how we view life right now. It was underneath the Old Testament law. That's why we have the New Testament. The New Testament's canon was written to present the gospel underneath this new age of grace. So the question then is, how did we get the books that we have today in both canons? And there's a test that was performed, and it's known as the test of canonicity. So there's several questions that these group of men asked that were part of all, uh, you know, all these churches here many, many years ago. They first asked this question, was the book written by a prophet or an apostle? Was the book written by a prophet or an apostle? If it was not... If it was written by somebody else, then it did not pass the test of canonicity. And there were other books that were written by men who were not prophets or apostles. The next question they asked then was this. Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Miracles were frequently given to separate the false and true prophets. The miracle was assigned to substantiate the sermon of the prophet. The next question they asked is, did the message tell the truth about God? Obviously, if it was a book that was written and it contradicted all the other books that were part of the canon, guess what? It didn't make the test. It wasn't inspired. God cannot contradict himself. He cannot lie. The, second, though, the fourth question that was asked is, did the book come from the power of God? I've had conversations with people in the past, and I've been there myself as well, and probably more often than I really should be, and that is, man, I read God's word. I remember talking with a teenager one time. He came into my office and he said, I'm just not getting anything out of my devotions. I've read these passages like 1,500 times, and I just, it's the same thing over and over again. I'm just not getting anything out of it. And I told him, I've been there too. But just because we, we read a passage over and over and over again doesn't mean that we knew, we know everything that we can pull out of that passage. 
The Holy Spirit works in us. The word of God has power. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There have been times where I've woken up and I've read something in my book or I've read something in my devotions and because uh, I'm reading it and I'm like, I've heard this passage over and over again, I've tuned it out and I've walked away and I'm like, I don't even know what I just read. Even if we read it a million times, we must pray and ask God to show us something. God revealed to me something that I perhaps have never seen before because the word of God has power. The fifth question that they asked was, is the book accepted by the people of God? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There must have been a general consensus that this truly was an inspired word of God. And so all these documents that passed the test that were ever written were brought together, and that brought us to the 66 books that we have in our Bible today as the inspired words of God. But the next question that we have to discuss here is, what about the Apocrypha and the Lost Gospels? Has anybody ever heard of the Lost Gospels before? Anybody ever heard of them? It's not as much of a common thing here. But you have got the Apocrypha, which probably everybody in here has heard of it. The Apocrypha is a cluster of 14 books that were written sometime between the close of the Old and the New Testament. So that 400 period, uh, 400 years of silence, that's when the Apocrypha was written. Now the simple answer as to the reason why it was not added into the canon is because it did not pass the test of canonicity. The books of the Apocrypha were never considered as part of the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Jews themselves clearly ruled them out by the confession that there was, throughout that time period, no voice of the prophets in the land which is why we do not have the Apocrypha in our Bible. In addition to that, if you were to read the Apocrypha, neither Jesus nor any of the apostles ever quoted from it, but they quoted from all the other books. The Lost Gospels is a group of books that are some of the most argued for when it comes to their addition to the completion of the canon. The Lost Gospels include the Gospel of Thomas, of Peter, Egerton Gospel, the Gospel of Mary, the Secret Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Judas. Now, we don't have time to go through all of them, but we're going to focus on the Gospel of Thomas for a moment because that's the most common one as to why it wasn't added to the Scripture. And here's the problem with the Gospel of, of Thomas. It's a collection of 114 sayings mostly attributed to Jesus, but they all represent a very different Jesus than all the other four Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, represent of Jesus. So there's a contradiction there between the Gospel of Thomas and all the Synoptic Gospels. There's no narrative or discussion of Christ's death and resurrection. And so it was for that reason it was not added into the canon. As I mentioned earlier, the, com the compilation of the 66 books was not without the work of the Holy Spirit. Bruce Metzger, he says this, There are, in fact, no historical data that prevent one from acquiescing in the conviction held by the church universal that, despite very human factors in the production, preservation, and the collection of the books of the New Testament, the whole process can also be rightly characterized as the result of divine overruling. So when it comes to the work of God, when it comes to the canon, we cannot overrule or rule out the Holy Spirit's overseeing of that act. Which brings us into our next point here this morning, and that is this. These documents that you say are part of the 66 books 
Are they historically reliable? Are they historically reliable? There's three tests that we can do to determine their historical reliability. First off, you have the bibliographical test. The bibliographical test. Josh McDowell, in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, I would highly recommend that book for anyone in here uh, that wants to know more about apologetics. It's more of a um, kind of a course textbook type book rather than easy reading. Um, but it's great to be able to pull all these different evidences that people have against so-called evidences, against the Bible, against God, against Christianity, and together. And this is how he defines the bibliographical test. It's an examination of the textual transmissions by which documents reach us. This basically asks the question, since we do not have the original documents, how can we be sure or how reliable are the copies that we have in regard to the original manuscripts? So in other words... The documents that we have here, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously they're not the original writings of, of, of the men. So how can we be sure that they were, trans, uh, that they were interpreted correctly? When we see the reliability of something based upon the mountain of evidence, we can be sure that that is absolutely 100% true. The bigger the mountain of evidence, the more reliable that thing becomes. We discover evidence of the reliability of the Bible based upon how many manuscripts were found in the Old and New Testament. The greater number and the earlier dating of the manuscripts, the easier it is to reconstruct a text closer to the original and identify errors or discrepancies in subsequent copies. In short, the more manuscripts found that support the information that we have in God's word, the more reliable our Bible becomes. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce says this, There is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth on good textual attestation as the New Testament. If I, can, if I can lay it out this way, combining both the Old and New Testament manuscripts that were found, there are more than 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls that were found of the Old and New Testament. To put this in perspective, if you were to stack up the manuscripts for the average classical writer like uh, uh, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, if you were to stack them up, it would measure about four feet high of all the manuscripts that were found of that particular writing. To stack up the manuscripts found for the New Testament, it would measure about one mile high. The stack of the Old Testament would measure a mile and a half. If you were to combine all 66,000 manuscripts of both the Old and New Testament uh, together, it would stack up two and a half miles high. So what kind of role does this play for us in our Bible study? If you were to take all those manuscripts and compare them together, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're dating them back all the way to the very beginning of when they were actually written because obviously they were copied over time. As they were copied and you were comparing all this evidence together, what they found is that the Bible that we have today is very similar, pretty much an exact copy of all those different manuscripts put together helping us understand that the Word of God that we have here is absolutely 100% close to the original Word of God written by the authors because of the mountain of evidence that we have when it comes to the manuscripts. We have to be fair to the Bible. Just like many other writings, there are no known original manuscripts of the Bible, but the abundance of manuscripts copies made possible to reconstruct this original text virtually complete its accuracy. Going back to what I said earlier, there are many major classical works in which we do not have the original manuscripts, but no one questions their authenticity. 
Bible scholar William Edward Glenny states, no one questions the authenticity of the historical books of antiquity, antiquity because we do not possess the original copies, yet we have far fewer manuscripts of these works than we possess of the New Testament. When it comes to the famous Homer, uh, Homer's Iliad, his writing represents 1,900 manuscripts. That's 47,000 less manuscripts than the entire Bible. But yet we don't question the authenticity of that classical work. So when it comes to the biblical documents, historical reliability, we can be confident that we have the accurate word of God, which brings us to our second test, and that is the internal test. The internal test. And some of you that are literature people, I'm not going to use the term nerd because that's not polite, but those of you that are into English and literature probably have heard of Aristotle's dictum. And it says this, the benefit of the doubt is to be given to the document itself, not arrogated by the critic to himself. One must listen to the claims of the document under analysis and not assume fraud or error unless the author disqualified himself by contradictions or known factual inaccuracies. Robert M. Horn amplifies this point by stating this. Think for a moment about what needs to be demonstrated concerning a difficulty in order to transfer it into the category of a valid argument against doctrine. Certainly much more is required than the mere appearance of a contradiction. First, we must be certain that we have correctly understood the passage, the sense in which it uses words or numbers, and second, we must possess all available knowledge in this matter. Third, that no further light can possibly be thrown on it by advancing knowledge, textual research, or archaeology, and so on and so forth. What he's basically saying here is that before you can say that that passage is not authentic, it's not reliable, you must have searched all the ins and outs, all the meanings of that particular passage, looked at it internally to determine whether or not that thing is actually legitimate. There have been no proof that the very various authors of the books of the Bible had any character issues or left any grounds to be thought of as untrustworthy. In fact, most of the New Testament authors write from an eyewitness account of the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Bruce, F.F. Bruce states this, the earliest preachers of the gospel knew the value of firsthand testimony and appealed it to a time and time again. We are witnesses of these things, they said. That was their constant, confident and, uh, assertion. And it can have been by no means as easy as some writers seem to think. Matter of fact, they could not have invented words and deeds of Jesus in those early years when so many of his disciples were about who could remember what he had done and what he had not done. Bruce goes on to state, it was not only friendly eyewitnesses that the preachers had to reckon with, there were others less well disposed who were also conversant of the main facts of the ministry and death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies which would at once be exposed by those who would only be too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearer. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves also know. 
Had there been any tendency to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible presence of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. It's not the case. I love the story um, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so um, the Jews are, I forget which gospel it's in, but the Jews are having this conversation and they're trying to figure out how do we explain that there is an empty tomb? How do we explain that there is no Jesus in that tomb? So the Jews got together, and you know what? They came up with a plan, and the Bible says the Jews still hold to this this day. They blamed it, and they said that his body was actually stolen by the disciples, and it was buried uh, or taken away, and so nobody was ever able to find that body. What's interesting about that is that the Jewish Pharisees, the resurrection would actually mean the end of the world for them. They knew that they would have no authority over their people if the resurrection was actually real because everything that Jesus Christ said he would do, actually he he did and he conquered death. So the Jews never argued against the resurrection. They came up with a plan and said, let's tell everybody that his body was stolen and the Bible says that the Jews still hold to that this day. If, they, if, these, if these eyewitnesses were not reliable, don't you think something would come out in history to say that they were actually wrong in what they were teaching? But nobody's ever been able to come out with anything that, be, that, that goes against these eyewitness accounts. The, the final test you have here is the external test. The external test look at, looks at all the archaeological finds as well supporting documents that speak to the reliability of the Bible. And there are several, but we're only going to focus on one of the most significant finds in all of biblical uh, basis, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and is referred to as the greatest archaeological discovery of the century. It was discovered by a Bedouin goat herdsman, and it revealed that a group of dedicated Jews lived at a place near the Dead Sea from 150 B.C. to A.D. 70. They spent time studying and copying the scripture, but in A.D. 70, Romans invaded their land. They bound up all their scripts and they placed them in jars and hidden in the caves, and it wasn't until 1947 that they were discovered. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain the earliest manuscript of Isaiah and other fragments of the Old Testament, and it can be described as this. In one dramatic stroke, almost 1,000 years were bridged, closing the gap in the age of the manuscripts we now possess. It would be similar to being told that a painting you own is not 200, but 1,000 years old. And here's the really cool thing about this. A close comparison between the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Masoretic text shows that the transmission process between the manuscripts had been remarkably accurate. And more than 25,000 sites showing some kind of connection between the Old Testament time period have been located on Bible lands, and they've always supported what the Bible has said. A.R. Millard states that the most major cities of the Bible can be identified either by general geographic considerations or by tradition or by the current use of the ancient name. And the discoveries go on and on and on. There has never been an archaeological find that has ever disagreed with what the Bible says. It's only supported it. And so as we close here this morning, we're going to talk about two more questions next week. But maybe be reminded of this. May we approach God's word as not just a mere book that we read because we know we're supposed to. But may we approach God's word as a book that has withstood even the toughest scrutiny way more than any book has ever experienced. It's withstood the test of time. And it has never been proven wrong. 
If that doesn't speak to the authenticity and reliability of the scripture, then I don't know what does. But let this rest in our hearts here this morning. God's word is alive, it's powerful, and God's word is here to help us and to mold us and to shape us into being the person that God wants us to be. May we be reminded of that this week as we jump into God's word in our own personal time of study and growth.